Hello friends and welcome to the Beta Rav Cook podcast. I'm Carmel, your host, and I owe you all a sincere apology before I begin for the lack of uploading that's been going on recently. The last month has been insanely hectic and it's been very difficult to keep up with things. And I actually want to thank you for the messages that I have been receiving from people asking when the next episode's going to come out and you know when things are going to get going. I very much appreciate it and you know we've come back we're organized we've got a renewed motivation and please god be nader there's going to be episodes coming to us every week now and furthermore on top of that this week to make up for the lack of episodes that have been in the last month this episode on shlach discussing is going to be extra long and on top of that there's going to be a bonus episode so you're getting two for the price of one Another episode coming out, a shorter episode discussing the Halakha of Tzitzit, which is discussed at the end of this week's parasha because you, normally we sort of forget that it's there in the wake of the episode with the Meraglim. So we've also got that to look forward to. So without further ado, let's dive in. Let's get into Parashat Shlach. So this week's ideas are based on Devrei Torah articles and essays by Rav Chagai Londin, Tzvi Fishman and Simcharaz. This week, we have been reading Parashat Shlach, which contains one of the most famous stories in the history of the Jewish people, which, by the way, Rabbi Sachs referred to as the greatest error in the history of the Jewish people, which is the sin of the 12 spies, or Chetem al On top of that, there are also several laws discussed towards the end of the parasha, including the laws of Hafrashat Chala and the laws of Tzitzit, and we're going to talk about that in our little mini bonus episode that's coming. So, for now... It is extremely, extremely important that we go over this episode with the spies. So here's the rundown. God gives Moshe permission to send 12 spies, one to represent each tribe to Canaan, to Israel, to scout out the land and basically do surveillance before the people try and enter and settle. The spies go and they spend 40 days doing reconnaissance and when they come back, 10 out of 12 of the spies offer extremely negative reports, saying that under no circumstances should B'nai Israel try and enter the land right now. This was on account of the current population being very strong and that the Jewish people were dafka not so strong and so the whole enterprise just wasn't worth pursuing at the moment. And only two of the 12 spies, Yeshua and Kalev, said that we must enter and rejected this consensus of the other 12 spies. And by the way, despite their pleas, the pleas of Yeshua and Kalev with the people, the Jewish people decided to stone them. Upon this, God then decides to instantaneously wipe out the entirety of the Jewish people until Moshe prays and begs that they be spared. By the way, this whole episode of Moshe praying and speaking directly to God and God directly responding is a whole thing to be discussed on its own. A very, very interesting interaction. And that's just something to think about, though we're not going to address it in depth this week. But anyway, yes, Moshe prays and begs God that they be spared, which they are, though God does make the promise that this generation will never ever enter the land of Israel, which they don't. Only Yoshua and Kalev of this entire generation actually merit entering the land of Israel. So this is our big dramatic episode of the week, and there are many, many different ways we can approach this. I should hope, by the way, that to the critical listener, many questions are immediately coming to mind. It's a very weird episode about why it took place, how this happened, where it's happened, the point in time in which it happened in the Jewish people's journey, the people's very weird reactions to it happening, and so on and so forth. I mean, you could really go on ad infinitum studying this episode. But what is not up for question is that the reason this whole episode is so infamous is because, again, the spies made a crucial error. 
they committed a terrible sin by not encouraging the people to settle the land of Israel right there and then. I, <laughs> I cannot overstate how incredibly serious and tragic this episode is in the course of Jewish history. I mean, it's said to have taken place on Tisha B'Av, which is the most tragic and sad day in the Jewish calendar. We commemorate it as one of our biggest national tragedies. And so the big, huge question that I expect to be at the forefront of most of our minds is what exactly was the sin of the spies? To recap, they went and did reconnaissance, deemed it unsafe to settle, having the interests of the general public in mind, and by the way, not absent-mindedly, these men were supposed to be some of the best men that B'nai Israel had to offer. They were educated, righteous, pious individuals, and so even more so, surely we should be expected to trust their judgment, if anything. So again, what did they really do wrong? Every year I find this question usually leads to a discussion about the value of Eretz Israel, the fight for Israel and the value of making Aliyah. In Israel, the conversation can even get fairly political with discussions concerning the settling of new land and the struggles of Jews to end up here and make Aliyah, all in the name of not letting us forget the sin of the spies. And rightfully so, by the way, from a halakhic perspective, all Jews are bound by an obligation to settle the land of Israel. And so there's an extra layer of being problematic that we can add to this episode with the Miraglim. Also, by the way, since this is a fairly hot topic and is apparently quite controversial, I want to actually take a second to address the halakhic issue of making aliyah. And I want to preface and throw out a disclaimer that I am not a rav, I'm not a halakhic authority, and so I highly recommend going and doing the reading and the learning around this topic. But I just want to give a very, very, very brief overview. Um, to the halakhic discussion around this. I also am going to have linked in the episode description a document with lots of articles giving a much more comprehensive overview and all of the sources regarding this debate. So highly recommend going and reading those. Okay, so most famously we have the Rambam where a lot of people say that you know, there's still sort of a question around whether this is halacha because the Rambam didn't include it in his delineation of the 613 mitzvot in his Mishneh Torah. However, despite this, most Acharonim still hold that there is a mitzvah to settle the land of Israel according to the Rambam because the Rambam's consistent shita, and again, like I said, there will be sources in the episode description, is that living in Israel is a mitzvah doraita at all times. It just isn't included as one of the 613 because of structurally how that list is formed and also because of the magnitude of the mitzvah of settling the land of Israel and all of the sub-mitzvot that come with it. The Ramban, on the other hand, holds explicitly that it actually should be one of the 613 in his commentary of Rambam's Mishneh Torah. According to Chazal and Sefer Devarim, it is, and this is quoted, by the way, by Rav Kook himself in the name of the Orachayim, living in Israel encompasses all other mitzvot of the Torah. There are many more sources, again, like I said, all of which are linked, and I highly recommend going to look at them, but just to also do justice and share the other side of the debate, Rav Moshe Feinstein famously puskin or ruled halachically that Aliyah is an optional mitzvah, though Rav Shlomo Zalman Auerbach, Rav Yosef Shalom El Yashiv, and Rav Avadia Yosef all rejected this approach. So, as we can see, it's basically consensus amongst most Acharonin that there is a chiyuv to make Aliyah, there is a chiyuv to settle the land of Israel, but again, I highly recommend doing the reading, 
and having a look at the literature and the halakhic literature around this discussion. And I want to finish on this tangent by sharing a brief story about Rav Chaim Kanievsky, Zikaron Sadik Livracha, who was one of the greatest rabbinic minds of our time, a true Gadol Batara and a Haredi Posak who had one of the largest funerals Israel has ever seen, with hundreds of thousands of people in attendance. Whilst Rav Kanievsky was alive, a young student from Lakewood who had made Aliyah told Rav Kanievsky that many people believe one shouldn't make Aliyah to Israel until Mashiach comes, to which Rav Kanievsky responded, Chas v'shalom, or God forbid. And so, coming back to the parasha now, many argue that the sin of the Miraglim was not settling the land when they had the chance. There is also the opinion that it was actively speaking Ashin Hara about the land that was the big sin that the Miraglim were punished for. Either way, no matter what opinion you take, it is easy to imagine how this leads to philosophical, political and hashkafic debates about what the value of Eret Yisrael is to the Jewish people. But I want to approach this from a slightly different angle. Let's take a step back and do some pseudo-psychoanalysis of what exactly motivates people to fight for and defend an area of land. We've probably all heard of the term motherland, I'm assuming. So what does it mean to be a motherland? Essentially, you're talking about a land or a hub of a shared collective past. The kind of place you visit that brings up collective memories, where you say, oh, that's where my grandfather had this experience, or this is where my people experienced this event, and so on. Now what, if anything, is a stronger motivation to fight for something than a shared past? Whether it be the park that you grew up in taking your dog for walks, the house your family raised you in, or the community centre you were involved in as a family, these are the kinds of things that we fight for later down the line, because of these strong experiential bonds. So, if we understand a collective shared past as being the motivating factor in fighting for land, then the actions of the Miraglim make a lot more sense. They didn't see Israel as the Jewish motherland, and why should they? Sure, their ancestors may have dwelled there however long ago, and there may have been some archaeological connections between their nation and the land, but the land of Israel is not where the nation's recent past is based. In their lifetimes, and in the recent lifetimes that came before this generation, all they have known is Egypt and the desert. It even says, Let's go back to Egypt. Sure, we were slaves, but at least it's familiar. That's where we grew up. That's the culture that we're familiar with. Who can be bothered? Who can go the extra length to exert the energy to fight for a land they're not familiar with, that they don't understand, and which has already, by the way, been conquered by a much stronger people? Surely the spies were right in their judgment. Surely their reasoning checks out. Folklore and narratives of the far distant past surely cannot be expected to be enough to motivate a national enterprise and a war or a battle to conquer a completely foreign land. And we see this today too, by the way. Around 150-200 years of modern Zionism just isn't enough to assemble millions of Jews around the world to even feel strongly about defending Israel, let alone calling them to move here. In fact, the last 2-3,000 years of Jewish history has taken place in Galut, in exile, in the diaspora. Even modern Israelis go on trips to Europe, Africa and America to learn about their roots, which aren't based in Israel in their recent living memory. Therefore, there must be some kind of different explanation. There must be some other pull to Israel and significant role that Israel plays that goes beyond collective and national memory. A timeless purpose that was neglected and dismissed by the Miraglim and that is being overseen by so many of us today. So, let us look at the Pesukim in the parasha that appear immediately after the episode with the spies to see if we can try and put this in context of some higher purpose. 
These psukim are concerned with the korbanot that we bring to the Beit HaMikdash, the sacrifices that we bring to the Jewish temple. So the question here, obviously, is what's the link? What is the connection between the grave sin of the spies and the sacrifice that were brought to the Beit HaMikdash? We would have thought that all psukim concerning these sacrifices were concentrated in Sefer Vayikra. So why bring them up here? Because the link between the episode of the Miraglim and the sacrifices are concerned with the future of Israel. This teaches us something inherently fundamental that applied with the Miraglim applies to us now and will always be relevant to the Jewish people. Our connection to Eretz Yisrael is not one that is entirely dependent on a shared collective emotional nostalgia, but is entirely about the future, the Beit HaMikdash and the manifestation of holiness. A beautiful analogy that Rav Londin uses to illustrate this relationship is marriage. In Judaism, the relationship between a husband and wife is not completely dependent on past experiences, but on an internal spiritual connection that manifests itself in the future that the couple works on building together. You don't marry someone just because you've had some nice times together. You marry someone because you believe in the future you can achieve together and the holiness and goodness you and your partner are capable of manifesting together, side by side. So too must our relationship be with Eretz Yisrael. We don't fight for Israel because of its pretty views or its nice weather. We fight for Israel because of its inherent holiness and because we, as Jewish people, are so desperate to fulfill our potential manifesting that inherent holiness. Rav Cook wrote an abundance of the ideal that we call Eretz Yisrael from many different perspectives. I'm about to read a couple of lines that the Rav wrote in Enaya, a commentary on only the Agadot in the Gemara. Agadot are parts of the Gemara that aren't directly discussing halakha and most famously contain folktales and anecdotes. In the Rav's commentary of Masechet Shabbat, he wrote, This distant ideal of Eretz Yisrael that appeared already in Bereshit, has had its main limitation made clear, that being the integration of this ideal with living life practically and realistically, and conditioning the natural courses of our lives to adapt to the great spirit that seeks to integrate our spiritual lives and our practical lives, to unite them as one. I'm just going to explain here for a second what exactly the Rav is saying before I carry on. The Rav is explaining that the Torah has made it clear from the very beginning, right from when Avraham first got the call to go to Eretz Yisrael, way back in Bereshit, that achieving the ideal of Eretz Yisrael was always going to be something that we could rationalize ourselves out of pursuing, something that we would always see as an enemy of pragmatism and practical decision making. The Rav writes further in Orot Eretz Yisrael, To take the view of a glorious, splendid land, to have the inner longing for Eretz Yisrael in itself magnifies its holiness. So how does this connect to us and to the parasha? Through Korbanot. The intention behind a korban, if we look at the Shoresh, the Kuf, the Rish, and the Bet, is lekarev, kirva, hakrava, to bring closer, to achieve closeness. A korban is misirot nefesh, self-sacrifice. It is the momentary selflessness of setting aside our individuality in order to achieve something greater and beyond ourselves that enables us to really achieve closeness, both to the land itself and to the great ideal of Eretz Yisrael. At this point, I want to tell a story I read about Rav Tzvi Yehuda, Rav Kuk's son, that brings this idea into a very recent context. 
and one I'm sure that we can all relate to on some level. One Shabbat, not long after World War II, in Beta Rav Kuk, Rav Tzvi Yehuda sat with some guests around the table and one of them brought up a heated topic of conversation, the phenomenon of visitors, Jewish visitors, coming to visit Eretz Yisrael and then criticizing the country after going back to their home countries. The visitor at Rav Tzvi Yehuda's table said, These visitors complain about everything, the heat, the poverty, the backwardness, the political situation, and discourage other Jews from moving here. All, by the way, complaints I'm sure that we are now still familiar with. Rav Tzvi Yehuda responded by telling the following story, which he had heard in the name of Rav Shmuel Moliver, who was one of the earliest pioneers of religious Zionism. There was once a wealthy man who sought the hand of a young lady. She was the most beautiful girl in town and was blessed with many talents and a refined character. Her family was not very well off, so they were eager about a possible match with the prosperous fellow. The young woman, however, was not interested in the match. Rich or not, the prospective suitor was known to be coarse and ill-mannered, so she refused to meet with him. So the father asked her to at least meet with the young man once, in their home, so as not to embarrass him. After all, the father said to her, one meeting doesn't obligate you to marry him. So to please the father, the young woman agreed. So the following Shabbat afternoon, the fellow arrived at the house as arranged and was received by the father, and then shortly after the daughter made her entrance, but her hair was uncombed and she wore a faded, crumpled dress and shabby house slippers. The young man was appalled at her dishevelled appearance and didn't take long before he quickly excused himself and left. And he said, whatever one says about this girl, it's not true, she's hideous. Rav Tzviyahuda stopped briefly and looked around the guests at the table. Superficially, the Rav said, it would appear that the brash young fellow had rejected the young woman, but in fact it was the woman who had rejected him. And so too, we can say the same thing about Eretz Yisrael. It is a special land that will only be receptive to those who are open to it and who can really appreciate its spirituality and Kedusha. The land does not reveal its inner beauty to all who visit. Not everyone is worthy to perceive its special holiness. It may appear as if the dissatisfied visitors are the ones who reject the land of Israel, Rav Tzvi Yehuda concluded, but in fact, it is the land that rejects them. Rav Tzvi Yehuda's response was so fitting as the son of Rav Kuk. When visitors from outside the country would approach the chief Ashkenazi rabbi for a blessing, Rav Kuk would quote from Sefer Tehillim, May God bless you from Zion, Yivorechecha Hashem Mitzion. And then the guests would ask, what exactly is the blessing from Zion? In fact, the content of the blessing is described in the continuation of the same verse, where it says, May you see the goodness of Yerushalayim. The Rav would explain, the verse doesn't say that one should merit seeing Jerusalem, but that one should merit seeing the goodness of Jerusalem. So let's just bring all of these ideas together. Let's come back to the idea of Korbanot and Mishirut Nefesh. Both are rooted in the idea of being a part of something bigger than ourselves and in our own understanding and individual intentional acknowledgement of that fact. According to Ralph Cook, the way that we can rectify the sin of the spies and manifest the potential of Eretz Yisrael is through Korbanot, that is, through self-sacrifice. The more we engage with this, the more we are entitled to settle in the land of Israel and the more we'll find that we actually feel we belong here. Speaking from my own experience and what I've seen of those who make Aliyah, nobody denies that moving to Israel is difficult. Nobody pretends that living here is easy or that every experience as an Aliyah is a positive one. But despite that, so many of us don't feel this the majority of the time. 
The sacrifice that so many people have made to be here is exactly what allows them to appreciate the beauty of their choice and eternally revel in the wonderfulness of being able to live in Eretz Yisrael. It is that self-sacrifice that enables so many to not only actually contribute towards the Jewish collective and the Jewish future, but to feel that they are playing an active role. When we talk about Israel, we need not only refer to the past, but focus on the terminology of the future. Kedusha, Beit Mikdash, and Mesirut Nefesh are all terms that should be coming up when we engage in discourse concerning Aliyah and the role of Eretz Yisrael. Eretz Yisrael as an ideal, the building of the ideal society and physically manifesting the potential of the Jewish people and the Shechina, the divine presence, is crucial to our national identity and to our future as a people. So now I'm going to read and translate a section of Orat Eretz Yisrael where the Rav writes about appreciating Eretz Yisrael for its inherent Kedusha and not for what it is in relation to us or as a means of the people, but as the center of holiness in and of itself. The Rav writes, The thought regarding Eretz Yisrael that it has merely a peripheral value to facilitate the subsistence of the unified nation, even when it comes to fortify the concept of Judaism in the diaspora, in order to preserve its form and to strengthen the belief and fear of Hashem, and to strengthen the performance of the commandments in a proper fashion, this orientation towards Eretz Yisrael is not worthy of lasting fruition. For its foundation is very shaky in light of the towering, unshakable Kedusha of Eretz Yisrael. Eretz Yisrael exists on a plane far beyond being a means for the Jewish people. Rather, it is the epicenter of holiness itself. And we would do well to remind ourselves of this in order to avoid ever repeating the grave chet of the Miraglim. Shabbat Shalom.